This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 9th, 2002. Northwest Airlines Flight 85, a Boeing 747 with 404 people on board, is about seven hours into their flight from Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport to Tokyo Narita Airport when the junior flight crew takes over to give the senior pilots a break. The passengers have just finished dinner service and are settling into six more hours of flight time before reaching Tokyo. Without warning, while crossing the Bering Sea, the aircraft suddenly enters a 30 to 40 degree left bank. The pilot switches off the autopilot and begins physically fighting the shaking flight controls to right the aircraft. The pilots try to declare an emergency, but they're too far out to sea and cannot reach air traffic control. The senior pilots return to the cockpit and all four pilots now have to figure out what is wrong with the plane and come up with any potential solutions. The operating manual and checklists have no troubleshooting steps for this situation. What could have caused them to lose control of the aircraft? Were the crew able to overcome this situation and bring the passengers safely back to ground? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. We're back. We're, we're back. It's been a week, <laughs> but we're back just on schedule. <laughs> yeah, we're here with a, another episode. Before, of course, we get into it, ask that you give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Obviously, this is a, in the intro, I said this is, you know, an incident that's happening out over the Bering Sea. We had another episode out over the Bering Sea recently. This is not planned. <laughs> there's no mm-hmm. there's no Bering Sea conspiracy going on here. It's just serendipitous. It's a coincidence, I should say, that we have two episodes so close to each other that both happen over the Bering Sea. All right. Well, kind of a re- remote part of the world. Yeah. I got to look up where the Bering Sea is now, Gus. <laughs> it's it's out between Alaska and Russia. You ever see oh. those crab... Dateless Catch, one of those shows. It's like out there, you know, where it's like cold and crazy rough seas mm. and just super isolated. Okay, yeah. I guess I, I should have known where the Bering Sea is. Yeah. It's it's one of those, This so this is one of those things that's weird, right? Where you look at a map and it's like, oh yeah, we're flying from Detroit to Tokyo and we're going over Alaska and the Bering Sea. It's like, when you look at a map, it looks like a weird arc and it's like way out of the way instead of just going on a straight line. The catch is, of course the world and globes are round. So even yeah, though yeah. on the flat map, it looks like this weird curve and this really out of the way route, it's the most direct way to do it. It's that whole dumb curvature of the earth. Mm-hmm. So got to account for Supposedly. that. Supposedly. <laughs> Don't, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Something I, I think about sometimes, on long, especially on long flights like this, right? Like you're on a 13-hour flight from Detroit to Tokyo mm-hmm. is... The plane takes off and is in the air, right? Yeah. And it's in the air for 13 hours flying this route to get to Tokyo. The earth is still spinning, even though the plane's not attached to it. Like, does the plane have to land where Tokyo is going to be in 13 hours? Huh. Yeah. I'm not not saying I have an answer for this. No, I mean, (laughs) that... that makes sense. It's just a weird way to think about the world. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I don't want to say they definitely have to do that because I don't know that for a fact, but it's it's something I wonder about on these long flights. I'm like, hmm, are we landing where Tokyo was or where Tokyo is or where Tokyo will be? It's will be, right? Because, I mean, that even accounts for, like, the time zone. Like, I traveled recently and, 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 you know, left on a Friday and then got back on a Friday, even though it was, like, a very long flight. Mm -hmm. That's like a, yeah. Time zones, they'll mess with you, man. Time travels. <laughs> Time travel, who? Anyway, we're, we, we got off into flat earth and... <laughs> the, 
the where 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 will your destination be when you get there? We're we're not here to talk about any of that. We're here to talk about Northwest Airlines Flight 85. So this plane was under the command of Senior Captain John Hansen, who actually was a flight instructor for Northwest Airlines for the 747. Very experienced pilot. And his first officer was David Smith. But like we mentioned at the beginning, there was a another crew, another captain and first officer. Just because the flight was so long, they have like relief pilots. And so at the time that the incident started, the pilot in command was the junior pilot, or I should say the junior captain, Frank Geib. But when I say junior captain, by no means was this a new pilot. He had over 11,000 hours of flying. <laughs> so this was a very experienced crew. So it was like the... Flight instructor for the 747 for Northwest Airlines was the senior captain, and the junior captain had 11,000 hours of experience, so they had it under control. Maybe they shouldn't call it junior at that point. Well, it, it's still senior and junior. You know, it's sure, not, sure, it's, I know, but they could maybe just be like senior and... What's senior the, minus. Yeah, yeah, like... <laughs> I'm trying to think Less of, senior. Yeah, or like maybe they need to upgrade senior. Maybe it needs to be like... Senior plus. Yeah. <laughs> That makes the name old. <laughs> it does. To, to add to mm-hmm. what you're talking about here, the junior first officer was Mike Fagan, who had 25 years of experience flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, they're like going through security. And who, who would be on this flight? Uh, the junior uh, first <laughs> officer. <laughs> so all that's to say, these these all four of these pilots were very experienced. There was not like... Sometimes we talk about incidents where it's like, yeah, there was a very experienced pilot and a new pilot to the plane. That was not the case on this flight. It was all super experienced pilots in the cockpit. Some of our listeners may not remember Northwest Airlines, which is crazy to me. Northwest Airlines was eventually acquired by Delta, so it's all part of Delta now. But they were headquartered in Egan, Minnesota, near Minneapolis, St. Paul. And they were a very prolific airline. They were very Post-World War II, they were very dominant in trans-Pacific market, and they had a hub in Tokyo. And Flight 85, you know, was servicing a scheduled international flight from Detroit to Tokyo, to Narita, and it had 386 passengers and 18 crew. Yeah, that's a lot of people. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. It's 747, big plane, yeah. tons of people on it. The flight departed at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time, and the incident occurred at 5.40 p.m. Alaska daylight time, which was about seven hours into the flight. It's confusing i know we always again time zones chris they're messing with yeah, us yeah but anyway they, it was about seven hours into the flight and they were at thirty-five thousand feet over the bering sea as we say so often routine mm-hmm. and since the flight was so long the pilots were flying in shifts the senior pilots handled the first half of the flight the takeoff and you're know, getting out here to more or less halfway then the junior pilots came in to take over and then the plan was the senior pilots would return near the end of the flight to handle the approach and landing into Narita in Tokyo. Okay. You know, the whole rest thing, and I can't imagine flying for 13 hours. Imagine being at work and being on, you know, doing your job for 13 hours straight with no oh, break. Yeah. I'm trying to think if great. I've ever been dro- drove a car for that long. I've driven a car for like eight. I think the most I've driven a car for is like 10, and it's like miserable. Oh, yeah. Man, one of the worst drives I did, I think I, I left... It's for a funeral, and I left at, like, 10 o'clock at night and arrived at, like, 11 a.m. the next morning. I was oh. so dead. Oh, bad, so, bad choice. No, oh, 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 bad. <laughs> no. But, but that's a 13-hour drive. Yeah, yeah. So that might have been it. So they want to avoid that. 
And, you know, of course, we've talked about before, there are crew quarters on big planes like this. So, you know, the senior pilots leave the cockpit to let the junior pilots fly and they go and there's a crew quarters with, you know, beds and a rest area where they can, you know, nap and relax and rejuvenate. That way they're ready to fly, you know, again, when it comes time to land in Tokyo. So, you know, they probably would have had five hours of rest time, more or less, five or six hours, somewhere in that neighborhood, which is pretty nice. Yeah. I've never, I've never, I've seen like YouTube videos of the crew quarters. I've never actually seen one in person myself with my own eyes, but I think- How do they look? It's kind of cramped. <laughs> it, it's, it's, for the ones I've seen, I don't know about the 740, this 747 specifically, but the ones I've seen, it's like, you couldn't even really stand up in there. It's kind of like you crawl in and, you know, find your bed and then, you know, just kind of get in your bed and they're kind of stacked like bunk, like bunk beds. Because there's not a ton of free space. Still sounds amazing as far as like being on a plane. Oh yeah, it's way better than, yeah. than anything you, you get as a passenger. Yeah. It's a private room, right? Well, I don't know that it's private. The ones I see normally, it's like a bunk bed. You know, you, you split well, it. Sorry, and private as in like away from all the other passengers. It's just the crew. Correct. If you're ever on one of these big long haul international flights, you can usually see the door to these quarters. It's normally like unlabeled and has a lock on it. <laughs> mm. uh, so it's like normally you can you can tell what all the doors are for on a plane. It's like, yeah. oh, that's a closet. That's the bathroom. What's this one that's unlabeled and has a lock? Oh, that's where that's where the crew sleeps. The secret room. The senior pilots had left. They had retreat, they'd retired to their um, their quarters. The junior pilots had taken over. I think they were like joking about who was going to eat what. You know, <laughs> giving up the meals. You know, like again, a super normal flight, right? When these things happen. You can be mid-conversation. It's just very run-of-the-mill. And all of a sudden, the plane shuddered and entered a steep bank to the left between 30 and 40 degrees, which is pretty significant. If you're doing like gentle banking, you know, in a plane, mm-hmm. you might be doing like 10 degrees. 30 to 40, you know, like once you reach like 45, you know, that's pretty steep. So you would notice this if you were a passenger in the back. And Captain Frank Guybe immediately, you know, grabbed onto the controls and began fighting the control column trying to get the plane back to level flight. Right away, he grabs it, and his first question, his first thought is that maybe they've lost an engine or two. You know, there's asymmetric thrust maybe, and that's what's causing mm. the plane to, to bank like that. But the first officer, Mike Fagan, tells him, you know, no, all the engines are showing up fine. They're all working according to the instruments. They begin trying to troubleshoot what's going on, trying to figure out what's going on, and they summon the senior pilots back to the cockpit. You know, they, they buzz them to Yo. come back. Yeah, there's like a, a <laughs> chime and an alert they can give them to like come back to oh, uh, cool. Yeah, to in the, the little secret room. Right. I don't know for a fact, but in my mental image, like trying to think of this incident, I imagine the senior pilots are like in their pajamas, you know, like taking a little nap. <laughs> it's like, oh no, you know, they got to put their they got to put their uniform back on and go back into the cockpit. I was thinking, all, you said this. I know this is ridiculous. Like those old timey pajamas. With That's like what I'm thinking. That <laughs> like the hat with like the yeah. little fuzzy ball at the. <laughs> The pilots who are flying are, you know, examining the instruments and they notice indications that the lower rudder is stuck in a position deflecting 17 degrees to the left. Normally, when we talk about planes, you know, we just talk about the rudder mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the rudder is the part, the, like the back part of the vertical stabilizer, which you would consider like the tail fin. And it's what deflects left and right, deflects wind and helps turn the plane. Yeah. The 747 is so big that it has a design feature where its rudder is split into two pieces, an upper rudder and a lower rudder. Dang. Yeah, it's, it's huge. So the errors they're getting are indicating that the lower rudder is deflecting 17 degrees to the left. Their upper rudder presumably is working correctly and their lower rudder is malfunctioning. 
So and there's yeah, they're designed to be able to s- split like that. Yeah, they can act independently. They're not su- they're not supposed to. <laughs> um, I was gonna say it's like it seems weird that they would. There'd be I don't couldn't think of very many instances where they would n- not act together. I agree with you, and I think that in flight you would never see that. I believe that it's designed that way because it was so big that it would be difficult to move one piece of metal mm-hmm. that much, you know, with the, the yeah. actuators and the pistons. Plus, it's also redundancy. If one fails, mm, like in this yeah. case, another one might still be working. I think just the forces of moving a piece of metal that much against super strong winds, you know, when they're flying, oh, just yeah. becomes very problematic from a, like a material standpoint. So if I had to guess, I would, I would assume that's why they developed this split rudder. Just for reference, the tail fin, this is the 747-400 that they're flying. The, the, the vertical stabilizer on a 747-400 like this mm-hmm. is about 32 feet high. That's massive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about, this is also dumb. You know, like in terms of whenever they show size things and they show like the human next to like a T-Rex. Yeah. That's like taller than a T-Rex. Well, yeah, a T-Rex is, uh, I looked it up, a T-Rex is 12 feet tall. It's three T, it's almost three T-Rexes tall. <laughs> Dang. And so the lower rudder, which is what we're talking about here, is about nine and a half feet long. And the upper rudder is about 22 feet long. The lower rudder is definitely the smaller one, but it's still almost 10 feet long. Okay. And, and there's a left and a right. Upper and lower. Okay, so they're not like a... a- the rudder is what is on the vertical part of the stabilizer. So oh, it's the yeah. part that goes up and down. Yeah. Doop, so doop. it's I'm being dumb. Yeah, not not the horizontal part. No, it's good. I want to make sure our, our the audience understands too. I hope they got that. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the dumb one. <laughs> you know, the captain is you know trying to fully input right rudder on his pedals. You know, he's actively stepping hard on the right rudder. It's only affecting the upper rudder. So. Now they're flying in a situation where the rudders are pointing in opposite directions, which is what you were talking about earlier. It's mm, like and that's you wouldn't that, expect that. Can, that's that's probably puts extra pressure on them, right? Right. It creates a weird weird forces on it. And in fact, I don't know if you remember a long time ago, we did an episode about an American Airlines flight yes. that encountered turbulence on takeoff right over New York. And he like pumped them. Right. And the the pilot was, you know, actuating the rudder so much that he broke it because the forces were so great on it. Yeah. He was like pumping them left, right, left, right or something. Right. I remember that because it, it, it was from takeoff because it was like in the tailwind of another big plane. Exactly. Yeah. They were in the turbulence. They were in the, the, the wake vortices of a 747 that had departed in front of them. Yeah. And, and good then, memory, Chris. I remember because I remember it being like wild. That it was just- yeah. So one of the th- one of the protections. I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad you remember so much about it because I, I do want to kind of tie this together to, with that incident. One of the protections in this plane, in the 747, is that when you're going slower, you can deflect the rudder more. When you're going faster, in this case, you know, they're at cruising altitude, they're at their cruising speed, the rudder deflection is not allowed to deflect as much because they don't want you doing what that other pilot did. Faster the wind, the more forced and the, the more likely it could like break. Exactly. The reason I bring that up is because, well, we'll get to it. (laughs) We'll get to that. I don't want to spoil anything. So the senior pilots come back into the cockpit. They presumably they've put their uniforms back on. They don't have their pajamas and their nightcap on. You know, they want to help troubleshoot. We wish they did. (laughs) And well, you don't want to see that. 
if uh, well, if no, he, no, if not, he has not, a pa- as a passenger. In my, in my mind's eye, dude. Oh, okay. So the senior pilots return to the cockpit to help troubleshoot, and they consult what's called the Cockpit Operations Manual for help. And the Cockpit Operations Manual is a red manual designed to cover any potential emergencies that may arise. And as you probably guessed, this situation was not in the Cockpit Operations mm. Manual. So at this point, all the pilots know is that the instruments are telling them their lower rudder is stuck in a hard over 17 degrees to the left. They don't actually know if that's what's really happening or if that's just what the plane's telling them or if there's something else going on with the rudder. Like, is it damaged and falling apart? Is, are they in danger of the lower rudder just entirely breaking off, which would then, you know, potentially make them lose control of the plane? So, you know, all they know is what's <laughs> presented to them on the instruments. They don't fully grasp everything that's going on necessarily. Mm. Junior Captain Guy is still at the controls and makes the call to divert the flight to the nearest runway, which happens to be at the Ted Stevens International Airport in Anchorage, Alaska. Again, just like our recent episode, they're diverting to Anchorage. However, Anchorage is 1,300 kilometers or 807 miles away. And then to complicate problems, like we mentioned in the intro, they're over the Bering Sea and their radios can't reach any air traffic control facilities to talk to them and alert them to the situation that's that's. I, I was going to say, unfolding. I think the Bering Sea is scary now that I know where it is. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of like <laughs> no man's land where there's just like, even in Alaska, there's just not much there. So it's like right. something goes wrong. Right. You can't quickly divert. Yeah. You can't let anyone know. Yeah, it's not great. And, and then they have to turn around, I, I assume, to get back to Anchorage, right? Right. So, but but in theory, they could just let let it go, and it would forty degrees spin them around. Yeah, yeah. But the the problem is that they don't know if it would stop there. If they just let it go, it's probably going to keep banking until they're inverted. Oh, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, not good. So, since they're out over the Bering Sea, they uh, try to radio another Northwest flight that's in the vicinity. There's Northwest Flight 19 that's kind of uh-huh. close by to see if they can talk to them, and if Northwest 19 can relay their information back to air traffic control, kind of like a game of telephone. Yeah. And they're actually able to get in touch with Flight 19 and begin this process of letting Anchorage know what's going on via Flight 19. That's cool. And around this time, the senior captain, John Hansen, asks if he can take back control of the plane. He says that if anyone's going to scratch the paint, it's going to be him. The exact quote he said was, this is from an interview. Spoiler, they make it. Uh, (laughs) He has a quote where he says, being the senior captain, bearing the responsibility, if anyone's going to scratch my airplane, I want it to be me. And I told Frank he did a fabulous job with the initial recovery, was doing a fine job flying it, but that I was going to exercise my right to get back in the seat. And Frank's reaction was, I have no problems with that. (laughs) (laughs) I know he didn't mean it like this, but he he made a pun. How so? He said he was... Something about bearing responsibility over the Bering Sea. Yep, you're right. And even I didn't, I didn't even think about that because it's not a good pun. <laughs> no, no. Kick off the summer with new gear built to last. Our friends at Shady Race have you covered from the sun to the slopes with premium polarized shades, customizable snow goggles, and much more. Shady Race is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world class product. It's just as good as any expensive pair I've ever worn. Plus, Shady Race offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements. So if you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they'll send you a brand new pair. No questions asked. Shady Rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order and have donated over 20 million meals to date. So you can look good in your gear, feel good by making an impact. My Shady Rays are invaluable to me. They go with me everywhere in my bag. So that way, if it's really 
bright and sunny as it often is this time of the year in this part of the country. I just can easily pop them out and use them wherever I am. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Their team always has your back. So just for our listeners, Shady Rays is going to give their best deal of the new year. Go to ShadyRays.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. With the weather heating up here in Texas, I find myself wanting to spend more and more time outside and less and less time in the kitchen. It's that beautiful time of year. Not too hot, not too cool perfect here. Well, luckily, Green Chef has delicious, easy-to-follow recipes that support your healthy lifestyle, and they taste good too, including their fast and fit recipes that are 750 calories ready in 25 minutes or less. This May, they're offering wholesome, elevated recipes featuring seasonal organic produce, unique farm-fresh ingredients like rainbow carrots, bok choy, and olives, in addition to their everyday offerings for every lifestyle like keto, protein-packed, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free. Myself, I normally get the vegetarian or vegan options, and they're great. On top of that, they've also got 10-minute lunch options, which are a real game changer. So you can eat something healthy, you know, even in super quick in 10 minutes or less. And that's on top of my go-to at home whenever I'm done with a long day, going through the Green Chef, cooking all the stuff they send, putting it all together, making a delicious meal that's done in seemingly no time. In case you didn't know, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. With a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. Plus, Green Chef is the only meal kit that offsets 100% of their carbon footprint, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. With Green Chef, you're reducing your food waste by up to 23% versus grocery shopping. So go to greenchef.com slash blackboxdown60. Use code blackboxdown60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F dot com slash blackboxdown60 with code blackboxdown60 for 60% off and free shipping. So it's not as easy as just like, okay, you take over the controls. I'll let you take them. Because Captain Guybe is having to fight the controls the entire time just to keep the plane level. So if he lets go, they're going to lose control of the plane. How much weight was he have? Do you know that? I, mean, I, I, I don't know how much force he was having to give, but in interviews, they said that it was exhausting to do it for more than several minutes, that it was really difficult to, oh, to fight the plane and control it. So in order to get Captain Hansen into Captain Guybe's seat, Captain Guybe had to relinquish controls to First Officer Mike Fagan, swap places with Captain Hansen, then Mike Fagan had to give control back to Captain Hansen. So it's, you know, it's a very delicate process to get anyone to, to swap in there. I'm nervous, too, because it's like, it just seems like the longer they're up, the more likely it's just going to, like, like that other plane, just snap. And that, that's what they're thinking, too. They don't know... Ugh. If like the longer they fly, if the situation's going to get worse. So the pilots decide, you know, they need to inform the cabin crew about the situation so they can prepare the passengers for an emergency landing in Anchorage. And the pilots invite the purser, who's like the lead flight attendant, into the cockpit and briefs them on the situation. Because as far as any of the passengers know at this point, everything's normal. They may, they just hit some really bad turbulence mm -hmm. and they're still flying. You know, nobody... No passenger is probably really like, uh oh, something's wrong with the plane. It was probably just like, oh, wow, really bad turbulence. We started banking really hard there, but everything's fine now. Yeah, they have no idea they're now going the opposite direction. Right. So that's why they have to brief the purser and, you know, the flight attendants then have to tell the passengers and, and get them ready. Actually, now that I think about if I remember right, I think the junior captain, Frank Guy, came out and was the one who uh, addressed the, the passengers and let them know. Okay. So because the pilots have to fly, like I said, they're still far from Anchorage. They have to fly an hour and a half back to Anchorage <laughs> to try to land on runway six right. And, you know, like we talked about in our recent episode, Anchorage is a major airport, but there are other problems like 
the mountains that are really close by. The Aleutian Mountains are less than eight miles from the end of the runway. Wow. Mountains and planes, they they never go together. (laughs) They do not go together. So if they're having control problems or something goes wrong, if they're not able to land and they need to go around, it's like they need to be aware of those mountains and avoid them in this on top of everything else that's going on. Yeah. Using the high frequency radio, the pilots established a conference call with Northwest Airlines in, you know, back in Minnesota, but the employees there were unable to find a solution to the sudden bank either. So the flight, the flight crew, you know, was taking control of the aircraft using the ailerons and asymmetric engine thrust to bring, Mm. to try to fly the plane. We've talked about that before where they give more thrust to engines on one side of the plane to try to compensate for this bank. Like I said, they were talking to Northwest Airlines back in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They were specifically, they were talking to the training manager. And the only suggestion he was able to offer them was that they should approach and land faster than normal. He suggested they land 20 knots faster than normal to try to keep more air flowing over the control surfaces to help them maintain control. As we've talked about in other instances or other incidents, when you change the configuration of the plane by adding flaps or lowering landing gear, you don't know what's going to happen when the plane's not responding normally. You could upset your lift. You could end up inadvertently stalling. Plus, on top of that, the thing we, we mentioned that I kind of teased earlier is as the plane slows down, the rudder deflects more. Oh, yeah. Right. So if they slow down to make this approach, if that lower rudder is really broken, it's going to deflect further than, than 17 degrees to the left. Mm. So it could potentially become less stable. So... The training manager tells them, come in faster than normal, reduce the deflection on that lower rudder if it is deflected, and keep more air flowing over your control surfaces. I guess it's good advice. It sounds counterintuitive, but yeah. Right. And then on top of that, okay, so even if everything goes well, best case scenario, right? Uh The training manager also reminds them, don't forget, the plane's nose wheel steering is tied to the rudder pedals. Oh. (laughs) So (laughs) if you land and you're still stomping on that right pedal... The plane's going to shoot off, like you're, the, the nose wheel's going to be pointed to the right, and the plane's going to land, touch down, and shoot off the runway to the right side. Oh. So. <laughs> so, wait, so how do they, they can't do anything to, to, they can't do anything for that, right? Right. So, besides the rudders controlling the nose wheel, there's also a tiller wheel on the captain's side, like oh, a little yeah, for, wheel that can turn, that, they, that, that steers. Right. Yeah, and we've, we've talked about that in a yeah. few incidents in the past, so. Now the pilots have to come up, they have to come up with a plan on oh, <laughs> how to <Jesus>. land. <laughs> so they, they talk through their responsibilities during landing and they divide up the tasks so that the captain, John Hansen, is flying. And he said, once the plane touches down, the first officer is going to take control or take over the control of the control column and manage the thrust while Captain John Hansen handles the tiller and the rudder pedals to manage the direction the plane's rolling. <laughs> mm. So even the landing's not normal. They have to, you know, figure out everything that's going to happen, the potential problems because of this, and then divide up those responsibilities to make sure everything's handled. Sounds like something's going to break. I, like, I'm just imagining coming in real fast and then trying to turn the plane in two directions. Right, because you're, you're having to really stomp on the right rudder in flight. Then the second that nose wheel comes down, you have to let go, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, then start working that tiller wheel to try to get it to turn. The opposite direction of probably where... Correct. Yeah. A part of me wants to say that that luckily everything went well and the landing was smooth and flawless, but it wasn't because of luck, right? It's because of the super experienced crew 
the planning and all the cockpit resource management Mm -hmm. that they put into this that led to a flawless landing in Anchorage. And there were no injuries, no fatalities. They nailed it. They landed it perfectly. They they actually landed 30 knots faster than normal. That's a lot. That's like... That's, that's That's a lot. How many knots is that? 30? No, no, no. Like total. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I see what you're saying. Like when they're, what, what is their normal landing speed? It can vary, right? A normal landing for a 747 might be around 150 knots. Uh, so they probably landed around 180 knots of speed, which for reference is about 207 miles an hour or 333 kilometers an hour. So really fast. Yeah. God, I'm just trying to imagine driving that fast (laughs) right and you know with them for them something's wrong Mm -hmm. and since they came in so fast remember this is a really big heavy plane yeah it presumably had more fuel than they expected because they didn't go all the way to japan and you know they had to really use hard braking to stop the plane and they braked so hard it caused all the brakes to glow cherry red from the heat that they experienced wow and they had to wait on the runway for the brakes to cool down before they could be towed to the gate that is wild. That's also kind of cool, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> That's very like Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, and, they and, did because <laughs> they were time traveling. Yeah. And you know, it's possible if you know things went wrong that the brakes could potentially catch fire. We've covered other yeah. incidents. In fact, in Revolution Eight, which we did just a couple of weeks ago, their brakes did catch fire. <laughs> so it's it's you know these were glowing like super red hot, which must have been scary. The plane landed, everyone was safe, there were no injuries. So now the question has to be answered. What happened? Was the lower rudder really deflected? If it, if it was deflected, why did it deflect? Was it damaged? Yeah. What's going on? You know, the NTSB, of course, investigates this. And on October 10th, 2002, they have an interview with the captain who was flying at the time, Frank Guybe, Captain Guybe. Then he said the airplane was cruising at 35,000 feet with the autopilot engaged when it abruptly rolled into that 30 to 40 degree left bank. And he said... There were indications the lower rudder initially moved left to what they call the blowdown limit of 17 degrees deflection and remained there. And the blowdown limit is what I talked about earlier, where at faster speeds, the rudder does not deflect as much. So at cruise where they were, Mm -hmm. the maximum deflection for that lower rudder was 17 degrees. So it deflected as much as it was allowed to at that speed. So he said he declared an emergency and made the decision to divert the airplane to Anchorage, Alaska. And the captain said he and the first officer ran through the available emergency procedures, but none of them could correct the problem. And like I said earlier, he, the captain says, as the airspeed decreased during the approach for landing, the lower rudder deflected further to the left. During the approach and landing, the crew used differential power to aid in directional control. And the captain said after landing, he observed that the lower rudder remained deflected fully to the left. Hmm. That that answers that the the rudder was actually deflected, and you know even after landing, they you know they got out of the plane and looked at it, and like yep, there it is, all the way to the left. So the seven forty seven four hundred has two independently supported and operated rudders, the upper and lower, which provide yaw control to the airplane. And we talked about that. We gave the dimensions of them, and each rudder is positioned by a hydraulically operated power control package or PCP. The hydraulic system operating pressure is three thousand psi. And typically, the upper and lower rudders operate in unison, which is what you said earlier. <laughs> they, they're supposed to go together. The lower rudder has less surface area than the upper and is positioned by two hydraulic actuators, whereas the upper rudder has three actuators. The hydraulic actuators for the lower and upper rudder are controlled by independent power control modules. 
The power control modules for both rotors are virtually identical and located next to each other in the vertical stabilizer. Each power control module contains a primary and secondary hydraulic control system housed within a single manifold, and in the event of failure of the primary or secondary systems, the remaining system can power the rudder. So basically kind of like four redundant, because there's two rudders, and they each have separate power systems that each have a backup, on a, a primary and a secondary, okay. Correct. You can think of these, these power control modules that move the rudder, you can think of it kind of like a piston that moves left and right and moves the rudder with it. And the lower rudder has two of these actuators and the upper one has three of these actuators. Okay. What happened in this incident is the lower rudder power control module manifold fractured, which allowed the yaw damper piston, that piston I told you that moves left and right, that moves mm -hmm. the rudder, it allowed that piston to travel beyond its normal position. Oh. And this resulted in the full left command input to the main control valve, which drove those two actuators to the full left rudder position. So that piston that moves left and right, the housing that kind of keeps, that contains it, keeps it in place, one of the sides broke. So the piston was able to move freely out of that broken side, which allowed the rudder to then fully deflect because of that. So the, the housing broke, but then how did they lose control over it within that? Or did it like j move and then jam? Right. So it moved mm. and then just fully deflected and got stuck in that position because it because moved. it's not supposed to go that far. Right. It moved further than it was designed to. And this housing, like this crack was like, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. It's like if you've ever seen plumbing or a pipe, you know how you have like a cap on the end of a, a pipe sometimes where it's yeah. like the pipe doesn't go anywhere and you cap it. It's like if that cap broke and there was a piston inside that came out. And they got wedged. And they, Right, exactly. So the NTSB finds, you know, that there was a fatigue crack in this power control module and that it was not possible to visually inspect that type of failure. The lower rudder control module's cast metal housing had broken and the end portion of the control module housing that housed the yaw damper actuator had separated from the main portion of the housing. That's just what I was talking about. That, like, that cap broke off. The NTSB ruled that the probable cause was a fatigue fracture of the lower rudder power control module manifold which resulted in a lower rudder hardover. And in this rudder hardover, the rudder's driven to its full deflection and stays there. During an inspection of the airplane uh, on October 10th, the lower rudder was found in the centered position. And a mechanic for the operator said during his initial inspection, the lower rudder was deflected left as witnessed by the pilot. He said the lower rudder could not be repositioned until the hydraulic line connected to the positioning actuator was disconnected, relieving the hydraulic pressure. So it had gotten stuck and the hydraulic pressure was forcing it to be stuck there. And the mechanic said, yeah, they couldn't move it until they drained the hydraulic line, relieved some of that pressure, wow. and then they could move it again. Like we said, that hydraulic pressure in the system was about 3,000 PSI under normal circumstances, so you can't overcome that. An inspection of the lower rudder power control module revealed that the forged aluminum housing of the lower rudder power control module was fractured. The lower rudder power control module and the flight data recorder were, of course, removed and sent to the NTSB lab in Washington, D.C. for examination. And the data recovered from the flight data recorder showed an initial uncommanded lower rudder deflection of 17 and a half degrees to the left. And as the airplane slowed during approach and landing, a subsequent increase to 32 degrees full left deflection for the remainder of the flight. So it got worse as they slowed down. It went from 17 degrees to 32 degrees, which meant that they just had to fight it even more as they were coming into land. The initial metallurgical examination of the fractured power control module by the NTSB lab revealed a mode of crack initiation and growth consistent with fatigue. 
Under supervision of the NTSB Systems Group chairman, the fractured power control module was returned to the manufacturer for disassembly and further inspection. This might be a, a, a prudent place to mention something. Yeah, I think maybe a question people might have is, you know, why wasn't this caught? Was, wasn't there an inspection for this part? The problem is that this was not an easily visually inspectable piece, which the, the manufacturer considered okay because the lifespan for this part, like the mean time before failure, was supposed to be something like 30,000 years or something. Like it was, a, it, I don't remember the exact wow. number, but it was like 10, like it was an astronomical number. 30,000 like, years. Right. Where it's like, well, it's never going to break. We don't ever have to bother che- checking it. Not until this nuclear bomb is no longer the the materials. I just think about those types of things, you know, they're like getting rid of nuclear waste and right. bury it. It's like, ah, in 30,000 years, it'll be fine. Right. It's it's it was like it was a crazy amount of time that they were like, yeah, we don't have to bother checking. It's going to be good forever. Anyway, that I just felt compelled to mention that there. <laughs> anyway, when they're disassembling and looking at the power control module, they can see that the yaw damper piston was visibly protruding from the manifold uh, and precluded operational testing of the manifold. So like we talked about, the piston had moved further than it was supposed to kind of come out from the part and was stuck there. All the individual components of the power control module were tested and no anomalies were found. Dimensional checks of the power control module showed no discrepancies and metallurgical testing by the manufacturer showed the manifold was made of material consistent with the manufacturer's specification. Since a fatigue type of failure typically cannot be visually detected prior to the actual failure, a non-destructive inspection process was developed. So they knew there's no way to find this problem before it breaks. So they had to come up with a way to inspect for this that didn't involve destroying the part. (laughs) A group of similar power control modules that were installed on other airplanes, as well as the spare unit, were inspected. And the inspected group contained power control modules with higher and lower use cycles than the incident airplane's power control module, and no similar fractures were found. So they find other parts in similar planes and inspect them, and they can't find any other plane that has this problem. Maybe it's worth mentioning at this point. Mm -hmm. One wrinkle to add to this incident is that this specific plane that they were flying that experienced this malfunction was initially the prototype. 747-400. Oh, like as in this was like, when you say prototype, as in the number one, like this is the prototype or this was like the original design that they prototype. Yeah, this was the first one they built. And they're wow. like, let's, <laughs> let's test it out. That's crazy. Yeah, so even though the plane was, however old it was at the time of the incident, it, was, it had been through more flights and more cycles than you would have expected because it had done a bunch of test flights. And probably... And probably like more harsher testing, like yeah, arduous kind of right. So that's something the NTSB had to keep in mind. It's like uh, you know this <laughs> this was also the first one they built. It went through testing and then was delivered to Northwest Airlines. Maybe this was just a byproduct of that as well. They they were never able to fully discern what caused that failure. So as a result, the manufacturer issued an alert service bulletin on July twenty fourth, two thousand three which recommended that operators perform an ultrasonic inspection of the pertinent high-time lower and upper rudder power control module. So just to be safe, they develop a testing process, this ultrasonic testing, to test all of the planes that use these parts to find any potential other failures like this before they actually break. So ultrasonic 
to, to chest and I guess inside of it. Right. To, that way you can kind of see, because otherwise, you know, there was no non-destructive way to look at it. Again, using that analogy I used earlier, it's like if you had a sealed cap at the end of a pipe and you're like, oh, I wonder if it's broken on the inside. <laughs> There's no way to look without breaking it. You just shake it and listen. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's Which like, I guess oh, okay. kind of like an old, it's like, that's a sonic test. Yeah. Yeah. This ultrasonic would be if you're doing it really fast, like this, and those are shaking. (laughs) (laughs) The FAA issued Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, an Airworthiness Directive, on August 28, 2003, which made this inspection mandatory on all these affected airplanes. So that's the the takeaway here. This like this this seems dangerous, but they don't know why it happened. It happened on a prototype airplane, and just to be safe, they. Develop testing to make sure it doesn't happen again. And did they find any other planes with that issue when they... That's a very complicated question. I was trying to avoid answering that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But you directly asked me, so I have to get into that a little bit. So the answer is no. In the testing they did of the other parts that they pulled from similar planes, Uh they could not find another part that was experiencing the same issue. That being said, and here comes the asterisk, (laughs) there was another plane that experienced a very similar issue. It wasn't exactly the same, but there was another 747 in in this intermediate time before they developed the inspection that had a similar rudder hard over and a similar braking and that piston moving, but they couldn't connect them like there was no way to figure out exactly why and the other one was a was a, a cargo flight there were no passengers on it so that's why it was like it was it's a weird asterisk i didn't really want to dive too much into that but that's the only other time that it it happened hmm. and that plane also was able to land successfully it was it was fine it just yeah it does seem like it's the prototype in the prototype they use all the same materials and everything like well yeah because they yeah want to make sure that to. yeah right <laughs> Uh, and I forgot to mention one of the things, one of the other things they did to make sure this doesn't happen, just to, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's the important thing about this podcast is, you know, what changed, what was learned and what safety was, impl- what safety mechanisms were, mechanisms were implemented to make flying safer. On top of the inspection, they redesigned this housing where the piston moves in and essentially they added little stoppers so that oh. the piston can't move further in the event that the the housing does break. So it's like, they, they limit the amount of movement the piston can have so that even if the testing doesn't catch it and even if the part breaks, the piston can't hard over like that again. And they, they added it and like backwards added it yes. to other? Okay, wow. Uh, not just the future-proofing it, yeah. Correct. They, ret- they had, This was a part that had to be retrofitted wow. uh, on all 747s. So even if, worst case scenario, <laughs> the, the testing doesn't catch it and this, this part breaks again, there's now like stoppers in there to prevent the piston from fully deflecting like that. Beyond that, did the plane have any other issues? Like, did it break anything by them having to, like, get all the way back to Anchorage? No, the plane was fine. Wow. That plane continued to fly for years. Once Delta bought Northwest, it became part of Delta. And I believe it took its final flight in 2015. It flew from Honolulu, Hawaii to Atlanta. And it was transferred to the Delta Flight Museum for public display in April 2016. Wow. They created a special permanent exhibit at the Delta Flight Museum called the 747 Experience, which was constructed alongside the aircraft and was formally opened March 28th, 2017. I don't know if it's still there. If you're, if you're curious, if it's still there, you can go see that plane at the Delta Flight Museum uh, in Atlanta. 747 Experience. Yes. That's a weird... It's I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the fact that it's an experience. <laughs> well, I think 
they probably wanted to have this because the 747 doesn't really fly anymore. It's very mm. like, I think they wanted to preserve it. It's, you know, the queen of the skies. It's such an iconic plane. And I think for future aviation nerds like me who like maybe if you never had a chance to fly one while they were in operation, it's a way for you to go see one and walk around in it and check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a little bit of reading right now while we're, while we're talking and it says museum visitors can enter the 747 via stairs and an elevator proceed through the intact first class cabin, then through the economy section, part of which has been converted into an exhibition space where the aft pressure bulkhead is visible. We've talked about the aft pressure bulkhead. <laughs> it broke in the Japan Airlines 123. It was one of our early episodes. Visitors are able to walk on a walkway that runs over part of the wing, protected by railings. In addition, the cargo hold has been emptied and the cabin ceiling removed so visitors can look down from the upper deck through the lower deck and cargo hold to see the entirety of the aircraft's massive cross-section. That actually sounds pretty cool. It sounds really (laughs) cool, Chris. I want to go check it out. (laughs) Road trip! (laughs) So to wrap things up here and put everything together, the lower rudder did experience a hard over failure, but the fact that they had a split rudder gave the crew a way to counter that. They were able to compensate for it. Mm -hmm. And... You know, changes were made in the design of this faulty control mechanism to prevent this from happening again. The fact that this ended safely can be attributed to, you know, excellent cockpit resource management. This crew who was super professional, super experienced, you know, they all knew what they had to do and worked together as a team, had very great communication. And in 2003, the Airline Pilots Association awarded the crew a superior airmanship award. Wow. For their work on this. So great work all around. The crew did a fantastic job with this one. Is that... Like, what's the highest honor as far as awards? Is that the highest honor? So I think it depends on who's giving it, right? Mm, uh, mm. So the Airline Pilots Association, this, I think this is probably their highest honor. But I don't know, you know what other, all the awards that are out there that you can potentially get. They got the Academy Award. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> the Academy Awards of Airplane, or Flying Airplanes. Yeah. But that's it for Northwest Airlines 85. I think this this one's super fascinating. I'm really happy we got to we got to talk about this one. Give us a follow on social media. The weird thing the weird thing I will say about this is you know we talked about Revolution Eight, which did had an emergency landing in Anchorage, and on social media I posted a video of that one landing, and that was back you know many many years ago. This one happened in 2002, and I can't find any footage of it yeah. landing. Well, it's because it's Alaska. Who knows? I'll I'll, I'll find some stuff. So I'll, I'll I'll put some diagrams of like the split rudder, and I'll see if I can find a diagram of a rudder next to a T Rex. I'll stack T. I'll I'll see what I can find. <laughs> I no promise on that, but I'll see if that's out there. Maybe I can make one. I actually recently heard that like T Rexes are shorter now than they used to be. Not not what, not like they got what is shorter. That, what, what does that mean, Chris? <laughs> like I saw a T Rex at a museum recently. And I was like, man, they, they don't seem as tall as they're represented in movies and stuff. And I'm sure some of that is, yeah, movies. They make them look bigger because it's you know a movie. But someone told me that they previously used to kind of like put the bones together in such a way where they're a little more upright. Mm. And now and they realize that they're, they're actually lower to the ground, you know, and kind of like lean down more. So they're not as tall as... They might have previously been represented in museums and things. That makes sense because when I read that it was 12 feet, I was like, that seems shorter than yeah. I was expecting. Yeah. I feel like, you know, if the way they at least they used to do it, it might have been like something like 18, but I don't know. I'm that's pulling, I'm pulling that out of my butt. <laughs> 
All right. Before we uh, fully wrap up, I do want to mention, uh, we mentioned this, I think, in our last episode. We're winding down this podcast. We have some other projects we want to work on and want to go out on top while we're still having you know fun and doing interesting episodes like this. I think our final episode comes out at the end of June, June 28th, I want to say. So just want to give uh, people a heads up that that is coming. And we say final, not saying never say never. It's just, you know, might come back at some point, but not, don't necessarily plan on it. <laughs> yeah. If you want to keep listening to both of us, we both have, are part of a D&D podcast called Tales from the Stinky Dragon, which you can listen to. We just started a new campaign. It's a perfect time actually to listen. Perfect time to jump into that. And we both also have a couple of projects we're we're getting started working on that hopefully will be coming out here pretty soon uh, once we wrap up Black Box Down. That being said, we still will be back next week with another episode and uh, you'll hear from us then. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.